But it, as I said, it is good to be with you this morning. And if you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verse 16, we are going to, uh, Lord willing, finish Luke chapter 14 today. Um, and there are some pretty challenging parts to this passage, but I trust that... Um, as we look at the Bible in context, it will help us to understand them. One of the best things my father ever told me was that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. If, if a theological idea that is presented to you um, based on one passage of Scripture seems to contradict five or six other Scriptures... Uh, then it's a very good chance that it's being taken in error. But as we balance the whole Bible together and we, and we look at it as one big whole and we try to uh, identify what the overall message is, that will help us keep things in context and not uh, pull things out and, and make things say what we want them to say. I'm reminded of a story whereby a man was depressed and he was looking for inspiration from his Bible. So he did something that I don't really recommend, but that I will admit that I occasionally do, and that is he opened up his Bible to a random page and it said, um, Judas went out and hanged himself. Well, that's not exactly encouraging, so he closed his Bible and he, he, tried, he decided to do it again, and he turned in his Bible, and he turned to the verse, go and do likewise. <laughs> so uh, that is not really a good way to uh, study the Bible or to get your theology, but that is just, a, uh, I think, a good introduction, because, like I said, some of the things, uh, specifically um, one particular verse, has its challenges as we seek to understand it. Um, but let's start out by reading Luke 14, um, verses 16 to 24. Luke 14, 16 to 24 says, Then he said unto him, A certain man made a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make an excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray that he have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray that he have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Uh, then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said, Go, said to his servant, Go into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. 
For I say unto you, that none of these men which were hidden shall taste of my supper. And as I look at this, I kind of see that it, that it might give us some illumination to what we will come to in our second point, as the, the Bible tends to do. Um, let's, but let's just start out by thinking about the supper. I always am fascinated by the way Jesus starts many of his parables, because he uses the words, uh, he often uses the words a certain man or, or a certain woman. He, he uses the, that phrasing. And I, some of those, I sometimes wonder if he's actually referring to real people or if he's just telling a story. But either way, he is setting up this story of a, of a man who made a great supper. And uh, he apparently invited people. I don't know how far in advance he invited them, but apparently he invited them. And he sent his servant to, the, to remind those that were bidden that they were invited so that they could come. And as I look at some of these excuses, you realize how flimsy um, some of them are. In verse 18, the first gentleman that we hear from says, uh, I bought a piece of ground and now I must needs go and see it. I pray that you have me excused. I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose it might happen here and there, but I don't know anybody in my circle that would buy a piece of ground without already seeing it and deciding, hey, this, this piece of ground is, is something that I want, and so I'm going to purchase it. So that, that immediately seems to be a uh, flimsy excuse. In verse 19, the next one says, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Again, we're talking about like a banquet supper, not something that is necessarily going to take up a huge amount of time. And yet he's saying, I need to spend this time proving my oxen so I'm not going to come. Once again kind of a flimsy excuse. And in verse 20, it says that another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And the, que the question begs in that case, why he didn't say, I've married a wife, can I bring her to the dinner? As believers, we have been bidden to dine with Jesus, to sup with him. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone uh, hear my voice and open the door and allow me to come in, I will dine with him and he with me. And so our goal as believers should be to encourage others to dine with us and with Jesus. And so I, you know, I, I think the proper response would have been, can I bring my wife with me? And these are um, just some observations that I thought of as I'm looking at this. And uh, so then the servant comes back and he says, all these people made excuses why they couldn't come to you. And so then he sends his servant back out and says, go out quickly into the streets and lanes and bring in hither the poor and the man and the halt and the blind. 
And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, yet there is room. So then he says, go out on the highways and byways and compel them to come in, that the house may be filled. And I, I think about this in context of the Jews' response to Jesus. Because they never really over, uh, they never really, you know, overtly uh, challenge Jesus' deity. They never say, well, he's not divine. They simply say, he's swaying the nation, he's taking away our popularity. So it was more important to them to maintain their popularity than to believe in their heart that Jesus was who he said he was. And, uh, but he allowed those who did come to him to come in. That's why he was criticized for spending time with publicans and sinners. Uh, first of all, the misnomer is that everyone is a sinner. So it's kind of interesting that that's the way the Pharisees saw it, that he was spending time with these sinners. But the other thing is that these people that knew they were sinners, Jesus could help them. Because they knew they needed help. The first step to dealing with any problem is to know that there is a problem. So that's an important thing for us to realize as we are looking at these passages. I wonder if someone could look up 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. This is just um, simply a cross-reference to this section of Scripture. If somebody finds that, uh, they can definitely go ahead and read that for us. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Okay, and, and that's what this banquet is a picture of, is the gift um, that, that God has given to us. And he came to die, as we talked about in the breaking of bread. Uh, John said it this way, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is basically talking about, I have, I have prepared a banquet, and uh, you are welcome to come in. But if you make excuses, then other people will be able to come in. It's kind of like when Paul started his ministry, he would sometimes go to the Jews, even though he was primarily called to the Gentiles, and the Jews ridiculed him, they tried to beat him up, they tried to kill him. And there's one passage where it basically says he shook the dust of these people off his feet, and he said, from now on I go to the Gentiles. Because the door was not open from the Jews, despite the fact that Paul, in fact, was a Jew. So, um, as we think about that uh, particular situation where, where all these people weren't coming to the banquet, but those who did come to the banquet um, were accepted and allowed in. I just want to share with you um, this story um, 
talking about what it is like to serve the Lord. You know, sometimes when we choose to serve the Lord, when we become a Christian, God causes our vocation and other things in our lives. You know, He causes certain things in our lives, definitely, to do a 180. And sometimes that includes our vocation. Like, I, I know of someone who drove a truck for Budweiser. And then when he got saved, he started driving trucks for Coca-Cola because he decided I can't drive for a beer company now that the Lord has saved me. So he made a drastic change. Um, but I want to share with you this, this story about, um, about kind of talking about service to the Lord. It says, In the 11th century, King Henry III of Bavaria grew tired of court life and the pressures of being a monarch. He made application to Prior Richard at a local monastery, asking to be accepted as a contemplated and spend the rest of his life in the monastery. Your Majesty, said Prior Richard, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? This will be hard because you have been a king. I understand, said Henry. The rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then I will tell you what to do, said Prior Richard. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. When King Henry died, a statement was written. The king learned to rule by being obedient. When we tire of our roles and responsibilities, it helps to remember that God has planted us in a certain place and told us to be a good accountant or teacher or mother or father. God expects us to be faithful where he puts us, and when he returns, we will rule together with him. So in this particular story, this man had the calling to be king, and he thought that in order to be closer to Christ, he should give that up and then go into a monastery and uh, serve Christ for the rest of his life. And the people at the monastery said, "Well, you can do good for you can do great things for Christ as king. So go back, continue to be king, but be obedient to Jesus Christ and have that as your focus. You know, when God chose David as the king of Israel, um, he chose a man after God's own heart." And it's reflected in the way that David ruled, that he was that man. And surely, as a nation in the United States, we need rulers who will rule after God's own heart. And I'm thankful that even though there is a lot of despair, there's a lot of things that are going against believers these days in the government, that I know that there are those who are serving in our governments, local, state, and otherwise, who do love the Lord, and want to follow his principles. So, um, as we as we get into uh, our second point, uh, Jesus talking about the the cost of discipleship, which um, this whole overarching message today is um, Jesus talking about being prepared for what he has for us. So we started with the parable of the wedding banquet. Um, being prepared for his calling. There's another passage that says, many are called, but few are chosen. Everyone 
in a sense, is given the opportunity to come to Christ. He says, whosoever will may come. And it says, the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, hath appeared to all men. We don't understand all the intricacies of these truths, but we know they are true. Um, but we also know that not everybody chooses that. And so now we're going to move on to the next section, which is Luke 14, 25 to 31 where Jesus is going to talk about the cost of discipleship. Because there is a cost. A lot of times when we preach the gospel in our modern 21st century way, we say, well, if you trust God, He's going to make everything um, great. Um, and, and we kind of imply, perhaps without meaning it, that you're not going to have any problems when you trust Christ. Which... Those of us who have been walking with the Lord for any length of time uh, know that that's not true. Um, there's, a, there's an old hymn that says, in, in shady green pastures, God leads us along. And the chorus goes, Some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. You know? Um, and it talks about how even in the rough times, God can give us a song because He's with us. He doesn't necessarily guarantee that we won't have rough times. He just guarantees to be with us through them. So let's look at verse 25 of Luke 14. Luke 14, 25. Okay. Let me see it. Okay. Luke fourteen twenty five says, And there were great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, and wife and children, and brethren and sisters, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear the cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to sit down and build a tower sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it. Lest happily he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, saying, This man begun, okay, able to finish it. All that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able, with ten thousand men, to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. So, this is where uh, kind of that confusing verse comes in, is verse uh, 26. He says, If any man come after me and hate not his father and mother, wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I have a personal story about this because as I was growing up in the Baptist church, when I was about 14, or, yeah, I would say I was about 14, maybe 12 when I first started here in West Springs, but when I was about 14, I really felt the call to preach. And at that time, I thought that meant being the senior pastor of a Baptist church. And, you know, I hadn't heard of the assemblies, we hadn't begun to go to the assemblies, and so... I remember um, 
having this discussion with my parents about the fact that I wanted to, to be a preacher. And I forget all that was said, but I just remember them saying, well, maybe we would want you to do such and such first. And I was like, well, I really need to do what God tells me to do because God says that I'm supposed to hate you uh, more. I mean, that I'm supposed to love him so much that it's like hating you or whatever. But at the time that I was having this conversation, it was I was being mouthy. I was not being respectful. I was using the Bible to fit my own agenda. And so this is what I'm saying about how we need to take things into context because we know that Jesus talked a lot about love and he actually talked more about love than he did about hate. He said, they'll know that you are Christians, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So he's not saying literally hate your family, but he is saying that if that if you have to choose between God and your family, choose God. Um, and perhaps that's a, that's a slight oversimplification, but I think that's the overarching truth. And as I was contemplating this this morning, I ran across this cross-reference. It's not in my notes, but um, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter... 13 verse 6 if I remember correctly and I'm just going to try to read this for you it says if thy brother the son of thy mother or the son of thy or, or thy son or thy daughter or the wife of thy bosom or thy friend which is as thine own soul entice thee secretly saying let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy father, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, not unto thee, or far off from thee, from the one end of the earth or the other of the earth. Thou shalt not consent unto them, neither hearken unto them, neither shalt thine eye pity them, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal them. So I just really thought, I just really feel like that passage really illuminates this one because he's not saying don't take your family responsibility seriously because remember what he said to the Pharisees he said you give a donation to the temple of your parents money money that you should be spending on your parents and you say it's a gift to God and you, you think that you're you're so great you, you, you tithe the anise and the cumin but you forget the weightier matters so I don't think we're talking about, you know, abandon those that you love, those that God has put into your life. But what he's saying is, if your family tries to draw you away from God, choose God every time. And uh, I think that's so important. And it also speaks of not just hating other people in comparison to the way we love God, but hating our own life. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He said, I am crucified with Christ, um, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So Paul is saying, I used to live for myself. I used to live in my own power. And now, now I am crucified with Christ. And the life that I'm living now is his life in me. And so that is another way to illuminate this passage. And uh, as it goes on, he talks about um, <coughs> counting the cost in different areas where you would. He talks about building a tower, you know, having all the resources to build the tower and being able to complete it. Um, Lest you sit down and you realize I don't have what it takes to finish this so I can't get it done. And then he talks about preparing for war. And my brothers and sisters, we are at war. We, we are at war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And I, I'm seeing that more than ever because the absolute lunacy of the world apart from Christ is mind-blowing. Every time you think that you've seen it all, some new level of depravity is shows up. Because without Christ, there is no hope. Without a moral standard, there is no hope. Um, the Bible says in Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is an offense to any people. We need to get back to righteousness in the United States. And I pray for that. Martin Luther, well, first let's look at a cross-reference here, and then I'll give you a quote from Martin Luther. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Continuing in this idea of sacrifice for the Lord, that it's not always easy. Let's see what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. If somebody gets that, they can go ahead and read that for us. Again, we see the Apostle Paul as an example of what it means to, to radically change your life. He was a respected Pharisee. He said he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He said that he basically went down a whole list of credentials where in the world's eyes he was the best of the best. And he makes a decision to follow Christ following the Damascus encounter, and what happens? He's, before he knows that he's being let down in a basket on the side of a wall because his life is being threatened. And some people even say at one point, we're not going to eat until Paul dies. Of course, at that point, Paul lived for another couple years, so I don't know how long they went without eating. But uh, that was the situation. Um, Paul probably had several more years of ministry, actually. So um, 
Yeah, I don't know what exactly happened, but Paul goes from this greatly respected Pharisee to this man on the run and uh, spent a lot of his time in jail and wrote a lot of the New Testament books that he wrote in jail. And they weren't the nice jail facilities that I go to every month. They were most likely dungeons in the ground and often chained between guards. But we see in Philippians chapter 4 that even some of the guards that he was chained to were hearing the gospel from Paul and being changed by Jesus Christ. So Paul, Paul never stopped preaching. And that's convicting to me. You know, even when he's in jail, chained to guards, he's still preaching the gospel. Why? He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because of the power of God to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. What a blessed truth. Um, Martin Luther said this, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing, is worth nothing. I often want to ask people that don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, why would 11 men choose to give up their life in violent, heinous ways for someone whose body they stole to make it look like he rose again? In my mind, the only way this makes sense is if he did rise. And they did see him after he rose. And he did spend those 40 days with them. And, he, and they did see him go into heaven. And they did receive the promise that in the same manner in which he was lifted up to heaven, he would come back to them again. That's the only way they would have the courage to come back from being persecuted by the Sanhedrin and told never to speak in the name and they come back and they don't say Lord take away the persecution no they say Lord thank you for allowing us to be persecuted and give us more boldness that we may preach you more fully and Paul asks that in at least one of his epistles maybe even more that he would be given more boldness I don't know of any other Bible character that was more bold than Paul and yet he is still asking for more boldness. So if I could take this opportunity to ask you the same thing, that you would pray that I would have even more boldness to speak on the behalf of Jesus Christ. We are living in a very dark time, a time when people that claim to be Christians are compromising the Word of God at a regular interval. But Paul said that we should study to show ourselves approved. Workmen that need not to be ashamed. I don't need to be ashamed of the truth of the gospel. I don't need to be ashamed of the truth of the scriptures. It may be bad news, but in order to get to the good news, you have to understand the bad news. My heart without Christ is deceitful above all things, but desperately and desperately wicked. And I was a desperately wicked person. But I've been washed. I've been regenerated by the power of God. And I am righteous because Jesus the righteous stands in my place. He's paid the price. 
And he's given me his righteousness and taken on my sin. For all eternity it's done. Many religions talk about doing, doing, doing. Christianity talks about it's done. What a wonderful truth that is. Alright, so as we count up this cost of discipleship, there's a final thing that we need to do. And that is to show Jesus Christ to those around us. Luke 14, 32 to 35. Luke 14, 32 to 35. Or else, when the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all he hath, he cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but man cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. One of the things that I've thought about since I was a teenager is this question. When people look at me, do they see something different from the rest of the world? So often, and I will include myself in this because I'm not perfect, so often we say to ourselves, is this okay for me to do as a Christian? I see so many articles like that. Is it okay to have body piercings? Is it okay to have tattoos? You know, all these different things, is it okay to? And I think often it's the wrong question. Because often, if we have a question as to whether something is okay, we probably shouldn't do it. Another aspect of this issue is a lot of times when people want to do these things, especially like the piercings or the tattoos, it's quote-unquote to express their individuality. But when you dig deeper, you realize that they do it, and then they hang out with a bunch of other people who are mutually expressing their individuality, so it's not really expressing individuality at that point, is it? It's more about fitting in with the chosen group. Thankfully, I've always been afraid of needles, so the whole tattoo thing was never that much of an attraction. And I always told my dad, I said, you don't have to worry about that one, it's not happening. Um, because I had to do some blood work a couple of different times. Once just routine, and then a couple weeks later because of a foot infection, which is gone now, thank the Lord. But, I don't know why anybody would willfully pay hundreds of dollars to have someone jab them with a needle for an extended period of time so they could inject ink under their arm, or anywhere else for that But, that's just a little bit of an aside, I don't want to get too sidetracked. But the point being... That when people look at us, they need to see something different. And often, the things that God gives us are... They're definitely better. And there are often things that we may have pursued in the past in a worldly way. 
I know this is a kid's movie, but I often think of this when I think of this principle, The Little Mermaid. In The Little Mermaid, the Walt Disney movie, she is given the chance by Ursula, the wicked uh, villain in the movie, to meet the prince. And so Ursula gives her a human body and says, I'm just going to take your voice as payment. And if in three days he doesn't fall in love with you, then you're my slave. Well, then after all this is done and King Triton uh, interferes and rescues his daughter, places himself in the place of his daughter, which has parallels to what Jesus did for us, and then uh, the villain is killed. He realizes that, that she still loves the prince. She wants to be with him. He gives her not only a human body, but he gives her a beautiful dress. The nakedness is no longer part of being in the human body. So despite the fact that this is a Disney movie, I thought I saw a lot of spiritual parallels because when Jesus gives us good things... He adds no sorrow with it. He says, as the blessing of the Lord maketh fat, and he adds no sorrow with it. Does God want us to be in an intimate relationship with someone of the opposite sex? For many of us, he does. And he provides marriage as the way to do that. So is it wrong to have those intimate relationships? No, it's not. But what the world does is they say, I don't need marriage. I can just do it my way. But that causes chaos, and there's more broken families now than ever. When I was a kid, I probably knew, you know, two or three kids whose parents were divorced. And now it's all over the place. And now they say the marriage numbers are going down, but it's not because... People are just saying single and serving God. The marriage numbers are going down because people choose to just cohabitate without being in the bonds of marriage. And that's the devil taking something beautiful that God created and telling the world they don't need to do it his way. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. There's a lot of things that he gives us that are not bad. But when we pursue them the world's way, they're bad. When we jump ahead of him and do them in our own timing, they're bad. So the question is, are you going to trust him? Are you going to forsake all that you have to accept what he has for you. I, I remember hearing this story about a, a little girl and, and as she got a little older, 10, 11 years old, her dad had given her these fake pearls when she was like 7 or 8. And as she got to about 9 or 10, maybe 11, he said, give me those pearls. And she said, no, every night for about a month. Finally, he said, do you trust me? And she said, yes. And he said, then give me the pearls. So she gave him the pearls. And he gave her in exchange 
a string of real pearls. And he said, I want you to wear these on special occasions. These are the real thing. And that's what God does for all of us when we come from the world to him. From darkness to light, he says, I want to take your fake pearls and I want to give you a pearl of great price. So the question is, are you willing to accept it? If someone could turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, very quickly as we close, and then I have one more story for us, and then we will be dismissed. But first, if someone has Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. So God is saying that every time we speak, you know, that's one thing that I've always tried to, to, to think about. You know, I don't think of my friendships with others as coincidences. I think of them as divine appointments. I think of them as an opportunity um, to come into the life of someone and impact them in a positive way. I remember seeing the old movie, It's a Wonderful Life, and... George Bailey thought that he had amounted to nothing in his small town with his four kids and his wife. But then he gets an opportunity to see what it would have been like if he'd never been born. And all these people who are living solid, respectable lives are totally different without his influence. Now, of course, if I didn't exist, God could send somebody else to do the work that I'm doing. But God brought me into this world for a specific purpose. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I'm, I appointed you to share my message. That's what he said to Jeremiah. And he says the same thing to each of you today. This final illustration says, George Sweeting, in his book, The No Guilt Guide for Witnessing, tells of a man by the name of John Currier, who in 1949 was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Later he was transferred and paroled to work on a farm near Nashville, Tennessee. In 1968, Currier's sentence was terminated and a letter bearing the good news was sent to him, but John never saw the letter, nor was he told anything about it. Life on the farm was hard and without promise for the future. Yet John kept doing what he was told, even after the farmer for whom he worked had died. Ten years went by, then a state parole officer learned about Courier's plight, found him, and told him that his sentence had been terminated. He was a free man. Sweeting concluded the story by asking, Would it matter to you if someone sent you an important message, the most important in your life, and year after year the urgent message was never delivered? We who have heard the good news and experienced freedom through Christ are responsible to proclaim it to others, still enslaved by sin. Are we doing all we can to make sure that people get the message? We've not only been paroled, we've been pardoned. We've been set free. Our sins have not only been covered, 
but they've been washed away and cast as far away as the east is from the west. We need to make sure that we are sharing with others the fact that they too can be free. And the fact that if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the balance that it offers. We pray that we would, we would take your word and, and do our best to, to live by it in context. That we would not uh, go too extreme one way or the other, but that we would follow your leading of your spirit. We thank you for the words of Jesus to encourage us. We thank you that um, yesterday, today forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. I ask that you would go with these people. I I ask that you would make your face shine upon them and give them peace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.